turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 7. We are presently in a series on the gospel of Luke as a local church to bring everybody up to speed, particularly those that may be new to us. The gospel of Luke has been written by Luke. Luke was a doctor. Um, he was a physician by trade. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. He became a Christian. And then he actually gave his life in part to finding out the truth, to really discovering what is the truth about Jesus? Where did he go? Where was he born? How did this all work out? He was actually employed and sponsored by a man called Theophilus who wanted to discover what is the truth. And what we have in response this morning is Dr. Luke's account of what the truth really is. Dr. Luke's account, having interviewed tens and tens of eyewitnesses and walked with people over some time to find out what really took place. This is his account so that we can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And this morning we gather around a most beautiful of scenes. So we're going to read together Luke chapter 7 verses 38 through to verse 50 at the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I've called today's message forgiven much. And let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, I do pray, would you help us this morning? Lord, would this story be to us as if it had just taken place last night? Lord, would you give us through the gift of preaching and through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the sense that we were actually there with the party. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may behold the glories of all that is taking place in this moment. And would our lives, Lord, never be the same again. 
In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, around this time last year, my good friend Patrick Chavez organized a Sovereign Grace Church Sydney 10-year anniversary dinner party. He gathered it for just a small group, and it was without doubt an unforgettable night for all those present. There's only 20 of us there. It was back when we were actually allowed to gather, but it was capped at 20 people. And so it was just a small group. I wish it could have been many more. But it was small and it was intimate. And yet, without doubt, it was a profoundly wonderful night. It was a surprise in part for Emma and I to celebrate our first 10 years here in Australia. And during the evening, it was a special time. We all had place cards as we began to sat around the table. So Patrick had arranged where we'd be seated. And on that place card was our name and a picture that somebody had drawn. And then as you opened up the place card, there was then questions, questions that we were to ask each other over the night. And they were all questions that helped us reminisce, helped us celebrate what God had done in our church in the last 10 years. And we began to share memories and stories and histories. We laughed together. We ate together. We drank together. It was a wonderful night. And then at the end of the night, Patrick had organized a video for him and I of different friends from all over the world. We're just sharing some of their stories and and thanking God for the different things that had taken place in Sydney. Listen, it was an unforgettable dinner party for everyone present. And I submit to you this dinner party that we have right here before us in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, is just the same. It is unforgettable. For everyone present at this dinner party, no one would have forgotten what have, what has taken place. When you begin to examine all that is happening here, they would have been talking about this for the rest of their lives. It was an unforgettable occasion. And by God's grace this morning, we too are invited to attend this dinner party. And so that's what we're going to do. Throughout the rest of the time, we are going to attend this dinner party. So I have two points. Number one, the party attended. And number two, the party applied. And I really come to this morning just with one hope. My hope is that we would see what was so unforgettable about this dinner party. And then having seen, ensure that our lives are never the same again. Oh my, this is an incredible dinner party. And so folks, come with me and let's attend it together. Point one then, the party attended. This party was indeed quite the gathering as we see in the text. And the host is one Simon the Pharisee. We are introduced to him in verse 36 and we discover very quickly that he is a Pharisee. See, the Pharisees are indeed the elite religious sect of the day. They are the rule keepers, the law keepers, the self-righteous of the day. And in truth, there is an awful lot of animosity between the Pharisees and Jesus. Not coming from Jesus towards them, but without doubt from them towards Jesus. They have so many laws, not just biblical laws, but loads more laws around it. And Jesus keeps breaking these extra laws. So there is animosity between them towards Jesus. And so it is surprising that Simon the Pharisee would invite Jesus to a dinner party at all. Indeed, it is somewhat unclear why he would even do that. Why Simon the Pharisee would invite Jesus over for a dinner party. I mean, perhaps Jesus has just preached in the synagogue. 
And so Simon takes it on himself, as would be tradition, to invite the guest speaker over for dinner. And so maybe that's why he's invited. Or maybe Simon is just keen on boasting about celebrities that he knows and he's had in his home. Jesus would have been a celebrity by this point in the story. Great crowds are gathering around Jesus all the time. So to have Jesus come to your house, well, that's something you could boast about. Maybe that's why he's invited. Or maybe for Simon, he's actually curious about Jesus and interested and wondering who he really is. Whatever the reason, Simon has indeed invited Jesus over for this dinner party. And as Jesus arrives at this dinner party, and he sees Simon and he sees his pharisaical friends. There is without doubt an animosity and a profound chill in the air. Not towards, from Jesus towards them. Without doubt from Jesus, from them towards Jesus. And it's palpable. You see, in verse 44 to 46, you discover that all the um, customary cultural traditions of the time, that would be afforded to every dinner guest, particularly an honored dinner guest, have not been offered to Jesus at all. There are some very strange things going on. You see, normally when you arrive in their tradition at the house of the host, when you arrive, the host would put his hand on your shoulder and he would give you a kiss on your cheek as a sign of God's peace to you and a thank you for coming into his home. Customarily then, they would actually take your sandals off your feet and you would wash your feet as you're entered to refresh you and to remove the dust from the day's grime. And dinner guests would be anointed by the host. A touch of olive oil would be put on your head as a sign of respect and honor. And yet to Jesus, none of these things have been afforded him. And to Simon, to everybody present, this is obvious. There is chill in the air. There is difficulty in the air. Everybody else has had these things, but not one Jesus of Nazareth. As Jesus takes his seat, then you can only begin to imagine what the level of conversation is like. Who knows? Maybe the side conversations going over across the room, wondering who's going to speak first, what's going to happen next. There is clearly chill in the air and disagreement in the air. So one may have been wondering who's going to speak next. I doubt there was lots of laughter and joy in the room. It is unclear then why Simon the Pharisee would invite Jesus over to this dinner party at all. And yet what is not unclear is the moment that one remarkable woman walks in. And single-handedly she changes the entire temperature of the room. Look with me at verse 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. You know, prior to this moment, there had no doubt been some serious animosity and chill in the air, but then a woman walks in. Indeed, we are informed a woman of the city who was a sinner, i.e. a prostitute, a woman of the night walks in. And as she walks in, there is quite simply no ignoring her. 
because she begins to kneel at the feet of Jesus. And then she begins to weep before Jesus. And as her tears begin to fall from her face, they fall onto his feet. And she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe these tears from his feet, thus washing his feet. And then that jar of alabaster, she breaks the alabaster jar and out pours the perfume that she begins to pour over his feet. See, for this woman, this is without doubt a moment of extravagant devotion towards Jesus. It would appear that at some point prior in this woman's life, she has encountered Jesus. Maybe she's heard him preaching in a crowd. And it would appear that she has given her life to following Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She understands in following him that she's been forgiven of her sin. She's been redeemed. She's been adopted into the very family of God that heaven will be her home. Her life has been completely and utterly transformed and saved by Jesus Christ. And so this moment for this woman is extravagant worship to him. These are tears of gratitude. This is an expression of love and worship towards him. And as all this takes place, we can safely assume that all and any private conversation that had simply been happening round the room previously has now ceased. And as the smell of the perfume begins to fill the room, there is no avoiding this woman. And as her tears begin to flow, all eyes, I submit to you, are on her. Kent Hughes says this, this about her act. He says, for this was an intensely passionate expression of devotion, indeed as passionate as found anywhere in all of sacred scripture. And so it was. This was a beautiful act of extravagant devotion towards Jesus in gratitude and love for all that he has done for her. Now, listen, you would assume and you would hope that at this moment there is an orderly cube forming behind this woman. Hey, listen, could you leave some of the ointment for me so that I may cleanse the cleanse the Savior's feet with this thing? You can understand that others may want to join in this act of extravagant worship to him. And yet, sadly, no one does. And in verse 39, then, you see the response of Simon the Pharisee. It's an internal response. He doesn't voice it. But it's recorded for us here in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. He is filled in this moment with indignant judgmentalism against Jesus. He is filled in this moment towards indignant judgmentalism towards this woman. How dare she in this moment? come into his house, this woman of the night, and start to spend time with his dinner guests. And how come Jesus can't understand who she really is? Well, Jesus then responds with a lesson to Simon the Pharisee, and it's in verse 40 through 42. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? You know, in this time in history, 500 denarii would be 20 months of salary, 20 months of wage. One denarii would be around one day's work, and it would be tight. So if you got paid one denarii, that's what you would need to get your family through the day without any without any um, reality at all. So 20 months of wages is 500 denarii, and two months of salary is 50 denarii. So the whole premise is, Simon, who's going to be who's going to be the most loved? Who's going to be most rejoicing? Which one will be forgiven the most? And he says, well, obviously, the 500, the one who's been forgiven a debt of 500 is the one that will love the most. And his point is, Simon, that is exactly why this woman is doing what she's doing in this moment. She's so overwhelmed with all that she's been forgiven. She understands who she was before meeting me. She understands who she is before God and the way she's broken the commandments before the Lord. But she's been forgiven much. She had a great debt that has been wonderfully and joyfully forgiven. And then Jesus most preciously addresses this woman. He looks in her eyes in verse 48. And he says this, and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. You know, in reality, this is something without doubt she already knew. That's why she's responding in the way she has. And yet how precious this must have been to have Jesus one on one look her in her eyes and say, it's true. Your sins have indeed been forgiven. Well, immediately in verse 49, there is uproar in the room because they start to say, who is this that forgives sins? What is going on? Who Who is this can do this? Only God can forgive sins is what they're really saying. And therein lies the point. Only God can forgive sin. And so Jesus tells her in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, this is without doubt a precious scene, is it not? J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says the deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and general are completely forgotten, as if written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble woman is known all over the globe. And so it is. Many emperors and kings and generals, their stories are forgotten, but no one has forgotten this story. This story of this woman is preached all around the world. It is an act of extravagant devotion before the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And, you know, as we gather around this party this morning, in God's kindness, we get to applaud this woman. We get to admire this woman. And yet in God's grace, we also get to apply what we see this morning. An application is important. Martin Luther once said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. You know, we don't just read the Bible in so many ways. It reads us. It comes after us. God still speaks today through his holy and precious word. And so how Do we apply this? Having attended the party, what then are we meant to do with this now? Well, how we apply it and what we're meant to do with this now depends on how we react to it, how we react to what is going on in this moment and how we react 
to the events that have just taken place in the room. So that's my second point, the party applied. See, maybe you're here this morning and you're in the first of three groups. And that maybe your reaction to this party is one of great joy. I mean, there's no doubt at all that in this Gospel of Luke, we really do see some incredible things about Jesus. We see his authority over the word. When he preached the word, it was like no other. It was almost as if he had like written the thing. And the reason why it was like that is because he had written the thing. These are all God's words, that all the words of Jesus. And so when he preached and spoke, he spoke with absolute authority because he had written it in the first place. We also see his authority over demons and over sickness and over nature. Whatever stands in his way in a moment through a word, he can bring change to any given situation. Even the fish obey his voice which ultimately led to Simon and Andrew and James and John following Jesus as they caught so many fish and having spent the night before catching none. Everything responds to the word of Jesus, such as his authority and power and might. And throughout this gospel, we've also seen his character, the way Jesus is. We've seen his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love and his compassion and his mercy and maybe you've seen all those things and your heart's response is joy joy in Jesus joy that you know him and just extravagant devotion wells up in your heart because you just want to sing his praises because you see him for all he really is my friends I want to encourage you that joy if it's what you feel in your heart this morning is an expression of God's work in your life Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't feel those things towards Jesus. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be excited and filled with joy in the Lord in the way you are. It's an expression of God at work in your life. And I simply want to encourage you to allow that great joy in your heart to become then extravagant devotion to the Lord. See, that may not look like tears and perfume and washing of feet. It may not even be a one-time act. But whatever it looks like for you to take your next step in extravagant devotion to Jesus, I want to encourage you to take it. It may be a leap or it may be a step in the mundane of lockdown life, whichever one it is. Take that joy and allow it to come out in extravagant devotion to Jesus. Because he's worthy of it all. He's worthy of all our praise. He's worthy of all our worship and our prayer and affection. He's the king. So if you are experiencing great joy as you see Jesus in this text, then allow that joy to come out in extravagant devotion toward Jesus. Maybe your reaction to this party then is one of, Joy, I want to encourage you to allow that joy to come out in devotion to the Lord. Or maybe your reaction to this party is one of confusion. Maybe in reality, you relate most to Simon and his friends in this story. You see them and in reality, you feel like them. I mean, what is up with this? Why is this woman doing what she is doing? And What does he mean she's been forgiven? Does she need to be forgiven? 
Maybe your response to this party is one of confusion. And to be honest, you stand in good company if that's the case, because once upon a time, that was me too. I was confused. I saw my parents like really loving Jesus and knowing Jesus, but I did not know him in the same way. I was confused. What's all the fuss about? What is this that's going on? What is the big deal? But my friends, when you examine the Bible, you realize there is a great big deal going on here that enables it all to make sense. You see, the Bible teaches us that God made us. It was him that knitted us together in our mother's womb, and he made us to find our identity and our joy and our passion in him. The challenge is we didn't. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible teaches us. We rejected him. We wanted the creation, but we didn't want the creator. And because of that, sin came into the world and the world started on a trajectory many, many years ago that simply began to break it down. We still see that plague out today, don't we? We live in a broken down house and we are broken down people. In reality, none of us at root level are okay. We're all in need. We're all in and of ourselves cut off from God. We're all in and of ourselves far from God himself. An object of his wrath, the Bible calls it. And God could have left us there, but he didn't. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God, in his abounding grace, sent his only begotten son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And Jesus Christ was his name. And Jesus made it clear that if you put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior, if you make me the king of your life and you believe I came and died for you, then I will save you. I will forgive you of your sins. I will redeem you and make you right with God. You will be adopted into the very family of God and heaven will be your home. This was his claim again and again and again throughout all of history. You know, this woman, that's what she had done. She put her faith in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And she was experiencing in this moment the joys of what it is to be forgiven of your sin, to have it washed clean and to actually for the first time in her life be okay. And my friends, that's exactly what you can do today as well. That story isn't just here for this woman. It's here for you as well. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, I want to encourage you. This woman was not saved through the alabaster jar or through her tears or through her kisses. She was saved through faith. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then in that moment, you will be saved. You know, this week I was watching, like many of you, the story of three-year-old AJ who went missing. And like you, I had the joy of watching on television the moment when the parents and the family heard he's been found. They are running. They are rejoicing. They are cheering. You know, the Bible says that that's the way the heavens respond when one sinner repents. Make today that day. 
Make today the day that you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In that moment, you will be forgiven of your sin and saved. And in that moment, there will be a party going on in heaven because of you. What a special day. Maybe you respond then to the party with one of joy. Maybe you respond to the party with one of confusion or just finally in closing. Maybe your reaction to this party is one of a sense of loss. Maybe in reality, as you hear this story of this woman, your response is one of, I used to be like that. I used to feel like that woman, but I don't anymore. Something's changed. My friends, if that's you, I want you to pause for a moment and consider if you can see yourself in this following illustration. It reads as follows. She took her children to the park to break the monotony of summer days, and instead she broke her own heart. She watched her children run to run to the playground equipment and as, a, as another car drove into the parking lot. The new car ground to a quick stop. A young, attractive woman with a beaming smile leapt out of the driving seat and virtually skipped to a secluded picnic table near an adjoining lake. The imagination of the mother began to race. Who could this attractive young woman be meeting in such a secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited and carefully planned rendezvous with an over-busy husband? A lunch date with a best friend or a tryst between secret lovers? The young mother determined to remain on the lookout for whoever got out of the next car. No one else came immediately, and the mother soon grew preoccupied with her children and forgot to watch the young woman. And when she did finally glance again at the young woman, What the mother saw made her heart hurt. The woman was reading a Bible. The person she had left from the car to meet with such enthusiasm was the Lord. And the mother recognized with pain that penetrated her spirit that she no longer had that same enthusiasm. Oh, once the excitement of her relationship with the Lord had overwhelmed her, once the joy of her salvation had burned warm and bright, But now the fervor had gone. Faith had become a dreary duty. God had become a detached, frowning bystander. Something had happened over the years of her walk with the Lord. She did not know what it was, but she did know that she was no longer one who would skip to meet him. She had lost something wonderful. And she wept there in the park for her loss. You know, maybe as you examine this woman this morning, you weep for your loss. Maybe you're aware your heart doesn't skip anymore to meet with Jesus. You don't feel the same zeal that she feels and you used to feel. And you weep with your sense of loss. My friends, I want to encourage you. If that's you, then that sense of loss going on in your heart, that too is an expression of God at work in your life. It is an expression of Jesus calling you back again. 
It is an expression of loss because he wants you to once again find joy and satisfaction and faith and encouragement in him and in him alone. So my friends, if you are reacting to this story with a sense of loss, then I want to close by taking you to another woman in the Gospel of Luke. Another woman in Luke chapter 10, namely Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. See, in Luke chapter 10, we see another woman kneeling before Jesus. But this time she's not kneeling before Jesus to offer extravagant devotion to Jesus. She's kneeling just to listen. It's extravagant devotion isn't where it begins. Listening is where it begins. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is where it begins. And so my friends, if you today are weeping for your sense of loss, but you want to freshly re-engage with Jesus and find your satisfaction and joy in Jesus, here's what you need to do. Follow the example of Mary and sit at the feet of Jesus all over again. And here's what you will find. As you take your seat, he will run towards you. Like any relationship, it can take time to re-engage and to feel affection stirring. But make no mistake, those lack of feelings as you pursue the Lord won't be coming from his end. He will be running towards you with grace and mercy and love. And the longer you sit with him again, the longer you will find your affections will be stirred. Don't leave today's meeting with a sense of loss. Leave today's meeting with a sense of I want to sit at his feet again. And you will find your affections for the Lord will wonderfully be stirred all over again. My friends, what an unforgettable dinner party this really is. It was a dinner party that no one would ever forget for all those that are present. And I pray by God's grace, it will be a dinner party that we don't forget either. May our lives be changed by what we see. May we apply what we see. And may our affections for Jesus be truly bestowed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I do thank you for this dinner party. Lord, I thank you that it is enshrined in scripture for us so that we may marvel at it and enjoy it together. Lord, I pray that our lives will never be the same as a result. What a savior you are. In Jesus' name, amen.